Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. This has been a momentous week in American history with the repeal of Roe v. Wade. I know I will have people who disagree. Honestly, that's fine. I'll take it on the chin. I support and welcome the end of Roe v. Wade, which federalized the right to an abortion across the entire United States. Now, with the end of Roe, we'll all be, yeah, men, women, and especially children and little babies in the womb, as well as humanity. We'll all be better as a society for this, and it's better for our democracy, and there's much more. Now, we will be back to state rights and what comes out of Congress. This abortion debate is complex and involved next week i'm going to have an episode on america's abortion debate and on other issues some related with my guest dr warren farrell selected by the financial times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders his books are published in over 50 countries and in 19 languages they include the new york times bestseller why men are why they are plus the international bestseller the Myth of Male Power. His most recent book is The Boy Crisis, co-authored with John Gray. Dr. Farrell has a unique and important take on abortion and other issues. And on abortion, his take may be something that has been overlooked in the present debate, so you won't want to miss next week's episode. Speaking of agreeing to disagree, that coincidentally is the name of a brilliant film production company headed by independent filmmaker Jimmy Morrison, one of the most insightful filmmakers on the topic of financial bubbles and meltdowns, credit manias, depressions, recessions, and economic disasters. Jimmy Morrison has some terrifying takes on the present bubble many feel we are living through, and I hope, I truly hope and pray, that what he sees and anticipates and hints at and talks about never happens. Anyway, after starting a house painting business at the peak of the housing bubble back in 2007-2008 period, Jimmy Morrison drove over 35,000 miles interviewing people who predicted the crash, resulting in two documentaries. The first film looks at the causes of the housing bubble, which we know struck America with a vengeance, and the other crisis ranging from the Great Depression to the dot-com bubble. Jimmy Morrison's second film documentary starts with the bailouts in 2008 and brings us to the bigger bubble, his latest documentary. It looks at our present economic situation today. It's pretty dismal. Well, to be more precise, Jimmy Morrison's company is called Let Us Disagree Productions. You got it right. Let Us Disagree Productions. And Jimmy Morrison is my guest coming up. What are people saying to you? You've spoken to a lot of experts, a lot of experts. What's their feeling about what's going on now that we're going into a very dark tunnel? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I I will say, like Mark Faber said in the second film, uh, which isn't out yet, but uh, he, I think the interview was from 2010 or 2009. But he was talking about how, like, once you get started with the stimulus, like, it's just never going to end, and eventually we're going to get to the point where we try price controls, and that's going to backfire, and we're going to have shortages. And he says, and eventually the U.S. will go to war because that's just what countries do when their backs in the corner like this, mm. and. Uh, it, it's kind of scary. One of the things that I'm sorry, Jimmy, you said the country will go to war, literally war. Well, if you think about it, we keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. We'll hear more in my full episode coming up with independent filmmaker Jimmy Morrison, who directed and brought us the Housing Bubble film documentary and is now bringing us his follow-up, The Bigger Bubble. Before we get to that, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with labor force expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back for Future Shock 2.0. What should employers expect from this labor market? Well, that's a challenging question. And I guess that's why we're talking about Future Shock 2.0, John. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, there's studies every day. I mean, this is the stuff I live and die by, but um, not hopefully die by, but <laughs> live by. And it just seems that employers just don't get it. Um, as we've talked about on, on other shows, there there is a labor shortage. We have this barbell-shaped uh, population, so we have a high-dependent young and old. We have a smaller percentage of people eligible to work, and then the, the skills are changing. So we definitely have a shortage, and we, we, you know, we, we talked about uh, how employees employers need to be different. But employers just don't seem to be getting it. Uh, there was a study by the Associated Press, NORC Center, that just came out. And they said that 35% of workers said that work has gotten worse, more stressful. That's from the people who were working in person already. Those are the people that worked in person and said one third say work has gotten worse since people have been coming back to work or companies have been allowing that hybrid or so forth. 41% said they were more stressed. And when it came to, um, returning to the office, people who finally said, hey, we can't wait to go back to work. We can't wait to go back to that commute and see people and go back to the way it was. A quarter of them said it's worse than it was before. So again, we're, we're in this state of flux. What employers can expect is that it's going to be a rocky road. It's going to be very uneven. Uh, recruiting, finding talent uh, is probably going to be this sounds odd, is going to be easier because the great resignation is going to continue to have a momentum like last month, again, a higher number. And there is no sign that that's going to decrease because the, the reasons that people quit jobs is they're still seeking that flexibility or we call it work-life balance or life-work integration, a whole lot of terms for that. Uh, companies still haven't figured out what that means. Just saying people can come to work two days a week or three days a week isn't enough. Uh, but the number one reason consistently across the board why people leave jobs is a lack of recognition. And when you think about it, how many companies have trained their managers on giving recognition? Maybe they give them a, a they, they send a, an email out or they have a half day session and it's once and done. And this is what we need to do differently where they buy new HR tech and it's all, it's automated recognition. It's not good enough when people are, want 
connection, when they want to belong, they're looking for support and they're lost, companies just need to do a better job. So what can companies expect? It's going to be a rocky road because not only are is there a shortage of people, but we're still trying to figure out how to manage a remote, hybrid, in-person workforce when they're all happening all at the same time. So there you have it from Ira Wolf. Never forget to recognize your employees if you are an employer. Solid and sound advice. Ira Wolf is an author, workforce trends expert, and top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR. And he's host of the popular Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcast. And let me remind you to catch the top-rated podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations, with famed bank analyst Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group as well. In the latest episode, episode 22, the conversation offers a rare insight on what is happening on inflation. We have inflation everywhere, and the findings from Dick Beauvais may surprise you. The conversation also turns to the presence today of the military-industrial complex. This is all fascinating stuff. Odeon Capital Conversations is hosted by yours truly, and it is up there on Apple, Spotify, and on all the good platforms. My guest is the independent filmmaker Jimmy Morrison, who has a new film documentary coming out, The Bigger Bubble, following up on the success of his Housing Bubble documentary. Jimmy comes to us from Iowa, and he has done exhaustive work and research on the topic of economic bubbles and debt and the consequences, the pretty dire consequences, as he sees it. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Jimmy Morrison, welcome to Dig Life Deep. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, we've been trying to arrange this for quite a while. You're busy shooting scenes and making movies, and I'm really excited that we pulled it off. We're going to talk about all this debt in our globe, the big bubble, the bigger bubble than ever, and your new documentary and the previous one and all your works. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, a, a great place to start, uh, especially since we're going to talk about the housing bubble. Uh, is in 2006, I dropped out of college to pursue film and I started a house painting business the month that house prices peaked. And my, my thought process behind it was that, uh, you know, getting an economics degree would end up, uh, you know, I would have some sort of job opportunity. I didn't see the crash coming back then. Um, and so I, I saw as if I went and got this econ degree, I would never pursue film. And so I decided to drop out and I was going to use this house painting business as a way to fund my projects uh, and give me the flexibility I needed to, you know, go on the road and film bands and stuff like that. Um, but little did I know that the uh, market was about to crash. And so I kind of saw it from the perspective of a house painter. I learned about home equity loans and learned, you know, the, these people weren't uh, just taking this money out of the bank to pay me. Like they were uh, borrowing money against their house to be able to uh, pay these high uh, painting prices. Um, and so I, 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 I was doing well with film, but um, I, I just, I, as the crash unfolded, everybody was curious, you know, I wanted to learn more about economics. Um, and so 
uh, as this was all going on, I looked uh, for uh, an audiobook just on economics that I could listen to while I was painting. And I stumbled across Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. He had written it in the 40s, but it really described a lot of what uh, we were experiencing. And so that gave me the idea, okay, if he could see some of this stuff coming, you know, there are there must be other economists and other financial people that I could track down. And so that ended up leading to uh, me driving like over 35,000 miles, uh, you know, interviewing legendary investors like Jim Rogers and Doug Casey, uh, uh, David Stockman, who is Ronald Reagan's budget director, Ron Paul, of course, Peter Schiff. Um, it really goes on and on. Jim Grant. Um, we've got a lot of great uh, finance people. And then we've got some amazing economists like Robert Murphy. Um, and uh, our co-writer, uh, or my co-writer was Tom Woods, who wrote a New York Times bestselling book uh, called Meltdown on the Crash. And so uh, this this has been kind of a long journey, but uh, what this all led me to is I've made two documentaries on, on the crash. And so the first one focuses on the run-up to the housing bubble, and then it goes back to see what we can learn uh, about other crashes throughout the last 100 years, like the Great Depression, the stagflation of the 70s, and kind of brings it all the way back up to 2008. And then the second movie that's going to be coming out later this year um, is the bigger bubble. And that starts with the bailouts in 2008 and brings it up to 2020 to show that like really these bailouts just never stopped and they've just uh, been making the debt problems worse and worse. And as we've seen these last few years, like, you know, this, this isn't sustainable as much as everybody uh, seemed to th think it was on CNBC. Yeah, let's just look at that. And people like you and other analysts say it's not sustainable. On the other hand, we've gotten this far and the economy ticks over. We seem to service our debt, but it'll end in tears by your reckoning and others. How would that look? Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting. We kind of have just gone through uh, like the longest period, I think, without a recession in US history, or at least close to it. And I think a big part of that is because in 2008, uh, when that crash played out, it was dragged on so much longer uh, than it had in other crashes. And that's kind of the effect of all this uh, stimulus and everything is it, it kind of drags that on longer and makes uh, the depression worse or the recession. Um, but then as we've seen, you know, as that money starts going flowing through the economy, like it, it does create that boom phase. And it, a lot of, uh, you know, I'll be honest, people in my film and uh, people in Austrian economics, they're, 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 and myself included, we're guilty of missing out on those boom phases because we're so focused on the crash and, uh, you know, how that's going to play out. Um, but basically, uh, we lowered interest rates down to 1% by creating a bunch of money and created a housing bubble. And they just did that for a year. And so then we bailed out all these banks and all the banks just got uh, bigger and bigger and their debt loads are worse and worse. So the two big to fail banks were in a much worse situation there. Um, and the, the housing market, the last 10 years, uh, not only did they push interest rates uh, past 1% down to basically zero for a decade, um, they were also uh, buying uh, insane amounts of mortgage-backed securities. The Federal Reserve was creating money to buy these. And so we just have this huge bubble that's been created. And I don't think anybody can claim to know exactly how it's all going to play out. But as we've seen, anytime they've tried to allow interest rates to go back up a little bit, or they try to you know, let some of these mortgage-backed securities or treasury securities um, you know, taper off, 
Like every single time they have to reverse course. And Ben Bernanke had claimed when it started that he was going to sell all of that back into the market. But, you know, as we've seen, you can't just dump all those mortgage securities and treasury securities on the market. And so they have to just uh, keep going back to lowering rates. So we're, we're in that stage right now where um, they're, they're allowing rates to rise. And this time they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place as price inflation has taken off because they're, they're out of options. And this is what a lot of Austrians have been warning about. Um, but I, I do think there is a, an important distinction that a lot of people say, oh, the Austrians are just, uh, you know, crying inflation all the time. Uh, but really it's about how, uh, lowering interest rates for, uh, to zero for a decade and bailing out banks constantly restructures the economy. And so it's not just the price inflation you have to worry about. The roaring 20s are a pretty stable prices, but all these distortions underlying the economy were created. And so it, it eventually it has to, to play out. And, uh, you know, with the housing crash last time, we saw it nationwide go down 30% in a lot of markets and went down 50%. And that was without this decade of insane stimulus. And then everything we've seen with all the COVID stimulus, which is just even, you know, more insane beyond that. So uh, each time it just kind of gets ratcheted up and they have uh, bigger bailouts and, uh, you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, the numbers are astonishing. Uh, We have our national debt of over 30 trillion uh, federal reserve debt of almost nine trillion as you, as you said they uh, propped up the housing market directly or indirectly and uh, buying up these mortgage backed securities um against a backdrop of rising global debt much higher in real terms than it was in 2008 naturally enough we've had this surging inflation in america and now they're trying to tame that and cool it off with uh, rising interest rates it seems like a recipe for disaster but if you talk to others on wall street but maybe wall street's protecting itself it says no we'll we'll have a tame recession we'll get through this do you think that might be the case or what's your thoughts yeah i mean i don't see how they can because we've they've put themselves in a situation where we're already paying half a trillion dollars in interest on the debt And, you know, so if we allow rates to rise, that's something we're going to have to deal with is that interest on the debt is going to overtake the budget. And then on the other side, we have the the price inflation where they've clearly lost control of price inflation. You know, it's they said it was transitory and that was just absurd. And the last time that they lost control of price inflation in the 70s, like we talk about in the first film, uh, Paul Volcker had to really allow rates to rise. And it wasn't some dictate from the Fed saying, hey, I'm going to set this rate and that's what's going to fix the economy. It was the commitment that I'm going to let rates rise to whatever the market says they need to be by stopping creating money. Because that's that's that mechanism that they're doing it with is just creating these uh, all this money. And so, it you know, Paul Volcker was considered uh, uh, an enemy by a lot of people because he allowed rates to rise and, you know, uh, whip inflation finally. Um, but uh, you know, the U.S. had to go through a recession. Uh, I, I just wish we would have done this 10 years ago, because if we had, you know, allowed those banks to fail, the ones that, you know, actually did deserve to fail. And if we had, uh, you know, uh, allowed ha- house prices to come down, uh, you know, younger people would have been able to afford homes and we wouldn't be in the situation now. Uh, like how much better would we have been able to handle the COVID situation if we didn't have all these higher debt levels and more cent- a more centralized economy? The one uh, big 
problem with creating money and lowering interest rates is it gives everyone the incentive to just spend the money instead of saving it, which they're trying to do because that's what GDP says. You know, if there's if your economy, the GDP is all made up of consumption, they don't want you to stop consuming. They want you to just keep spending. Um, but you know, what if we had allowed interest rates to rise and people had actually saved uh, this last decade? They would have been so much better prepared for something where they may have had to stop working for a few weeks or a few months or whatever situation they were in. That point comes across in one of your uh, documentaries that uh, higher interest rates encourages saving. And we know historically Americans aren't great savers, at least in the recent decades. There might have been some uptick during the COVID pandemic because nobody could leave their home. They were right. shut down. Now, there'll be some pushback to your thesis here and what you're saying, because most recently with inflation, uh, we're noticing that the Congressional Budget Office is saying that tax receipts have been going up. Of course, the mm -hmm. question is, will the, the tax receipts rise enough to help offset this rising debt that we have to pay off? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just like, so interest on the debt a few years ago was like 200 billion and now it's 500 billion, you know, and that's with interest rates at what they are. So I just, I, I really don't see a way out of it, especially because, uh, if you look at the government's own projections on, uh, like, um, you know, everybody knows, or not everybody, but most people have heard about the unfunded liabilities at this point where we've made all these promises to social security and Medicare, and all that stuff is just going to overtake the budget as our population ages. And so, uh, you know, even Ben Bernanke 10 years ago was admitting that by 2030, we were going to be running into significant problems with the budget. So it turns into a thing where uh, the Federal Reserve, you know, they're creating money and buying treasury securities and calling it quantitative easing. But if they don't do that, you know, who else is going to do it? And uh, with the promises they've made, we're not going to be able to just... Uh, uh, you know, do that without drastic cuts. And obviously, there's just no uh, will to do any sort of cuts. You know, if it's even discussed, you're, you're out of office pretty much immediately. So um, no, I, it's hard to have any optimism about it. And the, the, the tax rates, uh, especially like property taxes and local taxes and fees and stuff like it, it does seem like rates are already going up taxes and everything. I mean, there seems to be an awful lot of fear and anxiety in our economy now and across the globe um driven by what we're seeing with the rising interest rates inflation maybe leading to stagflation and of course against the backdrop of global political conflict the terrible situation in ukraine just massive polarization these are these are dreadful times i i can't emphasize that enough and then i don't want to be too pessimistic by nature i'm a, an optimist but i mean what are people saying to you you've spoken to a lot of experts a lot of experts what's their feeling about what's going on now that we're going into a very dark tunnel yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I will say like Mark Faber said in the second film, uh, which isn't out yet, but uh, he, I think of the interview was from 2010 or 2009, but he was talking about how like, once you get started with the stimulus, like it's just never going to end. And eventually we're going to get to the point where we try price controls and that's going to backfire and we're going to have shortages. And he says, and eventually the US will go to war because that's just what countries do when they're back in the corner like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's kind of scary. One of the things I'm sorry, Jimmy, it, you said the country will go to war, literally war. 
Well, if you think about it, um, like let's take Paul Krugman, for example, he's kind of one of the most uh, famous Keynesian economists. These are people that believe if you spend money on the military, that that is a huge boost to the economy. And so yeah. when the economy crashes, war is not a cost to you. It's a way of bailing everything out and saving the day. And even even Bernie Sanders didn't want to cut like the jet, the military like jet production that was happening in his district because he didn't want to lose uh, the jobs that it was creating. And so I think I think the Federal Reserve and the system that we have has already created a huge incentive for this huge military. And, you know, if Iraq had happened and Afghanistan and all this stuff and they had to raise taxes to pay for those wars instead of just creating all this money like they did where, you know, it was kind of hidden behind the scenes. Um, I certainly don't think the public would be as susceptible to supporting something like that. You know, like they would not have been able to have a 20 year terror war because we just couldn't afford it. The American public would have broken behind it. But instead, we just hide it through price inflation. And then, you know, you're paying the cost through the higher prices, but you don't necessarily connect the dots of where it's coming from or why. So we're talking about the military industrial complex here. And it, it's just a scary thing that, that somebody would that these people that have so much power that they would think that way, that war is actually good for the economy. And that's something in our first film we cover uh, pretty extensively because we wanted to, to show just how absurd that is. Paul Krugman makes the example, like, what if aliens showed up and we had to, like, everybody arm up and, you know, everybody's going to shift their production to preparing to fight the aliens. Like, Paul Krugman was saying, like, that's how we could get out of the recession. But obviously, you would be poor if that happened. But, you know, the society would collapse. Um, it's just an absurd proposition. And uh, it's very dangerous for people to, to think that. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart. And it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is the independent filmmaker Jimmy Morrison, who has a new film documentary coming out, The Bigger Bubble, following on the success of his housing bubble documentary i'm your host john aiden byrne there's a couple of interesting parts uh, to your filmmaking and your documentaries and maybe you could explain it to us uh, for lay people out there you talk about the central bank it's essentially the banker's bank if you will and so that's one concept and then there's the monetary uh, flows and then a central banker is uh, quoted saying we can keep printing money for the, the central bank. That's this whole idea. Uh, it's an abstract idea of America have been the dominant reserve currency, right? So, so two things there, really. The central bank being the banker's bank and then America having a reserve, the dominant reserve currency. By some reckoning, we can print our way out of money. So let's not worry. Continue the party. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, they've, uh, we were talking earlier about how they're creating money and bailing out the banks with it. Um, one, one of the ways of doing that is, you know, everybody heard about the TARP bailouts. And so they were bragging about, oh, we did TARP and, you know, Morgan Stanley, we gave them like, you know, $7 billion or whatever it was. And we saved the day. And everybody was up in arms like, what do you mean you gave these banks all this money? But behind the scenes, as we found out later, 
they were giving the Federal Reserve was giving secret loans on uh, Morgan Stanley had gotten over a hundred billion dollars. And so, uh, you know, the bank bailouts is something that is far worse than people have realized. And it was really cooked into the system where they use this crisis as a way of making it. So the bailouts just continued the whole last decade, even with uh, even uh, aside from QE that we were talking about earlier um, in 2008, they started paying the banks interest on the excess reserves that they kept at the Fed. So the banks keep a small amount of their money at the Fed uh, because they have to, but it's really not that much. Um, and then if they want to put extra money in there, the Fed for the first time paid them interest on that money. So they bailed them out to make their balance sheets look like they were uh, you know, solvent banks. And then each month they're automatically paying those banks uh, you know, a profit. And it's a small amount, but when you're talking about trillions of dollars that they've created, uh, you know, that, that adds up. Um, and so uh, I guess that's something uh, I just wanted to mention about the Federal Reserve side and, and the banks, how, how those bailouts work. But then getting to the world reserve currency, Nixon going off the gold standard and the U.S. being this reserve currency these last 50 years has allowed the U.S. to get away with this stuff. And so uh, the price inflation that people have seen overseas uh, you know, we haven't necessarily seen it as bad in the U.S., um, but it, that's something that uh, a lot of people think uh, it would never come or a lot of people said it would never come to the point where uh, we would be talking about the U.S. losing world reserve currency status. But even the Federal Reserve is saying that, uh, you know, they're not saying they're going to lose it, but they're saying we need to look at the fact that the world is shifting away from the dollar, you know, yeah. and the big scare for me is that they're going to shift this into central bank digital currencies where every transaction and everything is tracked. And, you know, if they get rid of cash, uh, people that want to go buy some pot in a state where they can't legally do so, which is fewer and fewer states these days. Uh, but, you know, if you don't have cash and you have to use a transaction that the federal government can see, uh, it's going to be much harder for people uh, like the black market and as far as like tax evasion and stuff, not that I'm promoting tax evasion, but like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. especially after what we've seen these last few years, the last thing we need to do is have the federal government knowing exactly what we're spending all our money on. You know? yeah, that's it's not just, an irrational fear. I've spoken to one a businessman several and um, they have confided in me that they would hate cash to disappear. I didn't mm -hmm. press them on it, but I made various <laughs> assumptions. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, so we had the crash in 08. Was that triggered, as we're told, the conventional uh, wisdom and knowledge is the subprime disaster? Was that, was mm -hmm. that it? Uh, it? It was definitely a big part of it. But what we saw was... Uh, it wasn't just subprime borrowers that were defaulting. You know, it was it was people that were rich that got bigger houses than they could afford as well. Uh, you know, the, the lower interest rate had affected everyone. Um, the the way that this uh, this cycle played out played out differently than other ones in that um, there were a lot of uh, things like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that were shifting things into that subprime and into a, a lower income. Uh, the lower income market. One of the things was the Community Reinvestment Act that people talk about, um, where banks were like, if a bank wanted to do a merger, they have to get approved by the government, or if they want to do a sale or whatever. And so 
if you aren't lending to the people the federal government wants you to, then you're not going to get that approved. And so they did a lot of things with like minorities of trying to force uh, people with bad credit to get loans, which doesn't actually help them because if they can't afford it, then they end up losing the house and they're worse off. Um, but I actually found in the numbers that that was uh, not a big uh, portion of what the, the crash was. Um, like there were 27, if you take subprime and then uh, there's uh, what they call non-traditional mortgages, they include subprime because you're loaning to somebody that you know has bad credit and can't really afford it. But then they have other kinds like Alte mortgages or what we call it in the film is just risky. We try not to use vocabulary uh, yep. words, but it's just the, the type of mortgage is risky. There's no down payment or it's an adjustable rate mortgage, stuff like that. And if you look at the non-traditional mortgages, the Community Reinvestment Act uh, was only like two or three uh, million out of the 27 million. Um, but the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac stuff, that was a big part of it because in the 90s, the federal government told Fannie and Freddie they had to make a higher and higher percentage of their loans uh, that they guaranteed to lower income people. And um, that's something that it was actually the law, they had to. And so it was actually Fannie Mae that came up with mortgage-backed securities and then the banks copied them. And so what we saw is 1997 and on is kind of when the early uh, start of house prices appreciating, um, kind of coinciding with the dot-com bubble and the, the late 90s when those uh, uh, Fannie Mae requirements uh, were increased. And then when they lowered interest rates down to 1%, that's when the banks got in and started going crazy with it as well. And so, um, I, you know, it's not that the banks were innocent. I'm not saying that. But they also, in a sense, were kind of tricked into this by the Fed, you know, creating all this money and lowering interest rates. You, you can uh, fight it as much as you want, but if you're creating trillions of dollars and injecting it into an industry using like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to force uh, the money into this industry, um, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money if you miss out on that bubble. So it's not just that they were... Um, being greedy. It was just, they were reacting to what the prices were telling them. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a distortion in, in where the profits are. Isn't all of this, the consequences of a credit fueled economy, that's the model that applies in the West mostly, right? And should we be surprised? Should we be shocked? No, I mean, I, I, that's, that's a good point. And like we were saying earlier, like, uh, all the problems that we we're talking about with credit and everything, like they're worse now than they were in 2008. In 2008, they were worse than in 2000 when the dot com crash started. Like it's, it's so weird for uh, trying to teach economics to a generation of people that their entire lives uh, have been one bubble after another. You know, I mean, I I turned 18 in 2005, and so. That's, that's kind of been my entire adult life is just watching one crash after another. And it, it, it ex explains the, the rise in the calls for democratic socialism in the U.S. It's not something I support, but, you, you know, if, if people don't learn about why this stuff happened, they just see Main Street getting screwed time after time. And uh, Wall Street and the banks, you know, they make a bunch of money when times are good. And then when times are bad, they make a bunch of money, too, because then they get all the bailouts. So 
Um, I, I think a lot of the frustrations get misdirected and that was a big problem with other documentaries on the subject. And so that's something I wanted to try to take a deeper dive into instead of just, uh, you know, having that surface, uh, uh, look of it and saying, Oh, banks were greedy. So that's why it happened. You know, like we try to, we try to go deep, but also making, making it generally accessible that, the, the whole public, you know, uh, a middle school or a high school kid could watch our movie and, and be able to understand our, our main points. So, yeah, no, I, I watched um, the first documentary before we went on the air and you can give us all the details for those who want to uh, watch it, view the next one. What are all those kind of details? What part does the ordinary American consumer play in all of this? Are they innocent of any guilt? Do they not have a decision on whether they take out a mortgage with a bank? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And uh, it, it kind of plays off what I was just saying with a banker. Like if, uh, if you go to buy a house and the interest you're going to pay over the next 30 years is X amount, and then suddenly it's half that amount, you're going to make different decisions. So yes, you know, people are going out getting bigger mortgages than they can afford, but it's also because that's what the data is telling them, you know? So, so yeah, sure. There, you know, there's plenty of greedy people that, that didn't just suddenly change in 2006, 2007, 2008. That was always the case. Um, And there were people that lied on their mortgage applications. You know, it wasn't just bankers that were making loans that they, you know, people were lying about how much money they were making. I mean, who, who, who's, who's been honest every time they filled out a credit card application, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, everyone's guilty, but at the same time, these are systemic issues where I don't want to say everyone's guilty. I take that back, (laughs) but, but these are systemic issues that are manipulating people into these industries. And so, I mean, if if you subsidize the hell out of an industry, can you really get mad if if people are diverted into that industry? All of those are fantastic points. And I I enjoy these conversations because we all learn more and hopefully we become wiser. But I listen to you, Jimmy and Peter. I've interviewed Peter Schiff myself, and I know some of the people who are in that in the documentaries. I'm wondering what's the ideal model then for our society, so we can all prosper and not go crazy on debt, and um, the government take a more responsible, maybe a more prudent approach. What, what's the model out there? What's what, what would you recommend? Right. Well, we're not. Uh saying that everyone needs to use gold or everyone needs to use silver or Bitcoin. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to know the answers for everybody. I think that's something that I really learned in this project is that these people in the film, if you ask them when the crash is going to happen, not one of them is going to say, I, I know when it's going to happen. They yeah. all say, I don't know. You know, yeah. I think the natural consequences of these policies are going to play out but I'm not smart enough to be able to micromanage an economy of billions of people or even millions of people. Um, so that's something that's been uh, very humbling uh, in, in this experience. Um, but I, I do think that historically gold and silver has played played a role. And so instead of you know making a gold standard where the government says everyone has to use gold, just stop taxing it. Like if you have to pay sales tax every time you're or capital gains tax every time you're transacting in gold, you know, how the hell are people going to do that? Same with Bitcoin, uh, you know, and uh, I, I've never told anybody to invest in Bitcoin, but it, it's something that if they're doing a, a, a longer term projection. Um, yes, there's a lot of people that got suckered into Bitcoin um, and, you know, and took the fall. 
But a lot of people that are in Bitcoin are doing it because they believe of how it's going to transform the, uh, you know, the banking system and that sort of thing. So they're expecting these 50 to 90% crashes uh, with this new asset. And, you know, we'll see how that all plays out, uh, whether it's able to come back like it, uh, it has in the past. Um, but I, I think that uh, his, based on history, gold and silver are a great way of protecting yourself. They're not, uh, Peter Schiff likes to point out that like, you're not going to get it's not that you're getting rich investing in gold. It's that you're using gold as money as a way of savings. So yeah. you don't compare it to a stock return because it's not the same thing. Um, and so uh, that's something that we've kind of encouraged people is that if you are able to just save a little bit of gold and silver or whatever that you're trying to do, try to get that couple months uh, leeway where if uh, you know there's a market crash and if things, if you got to find a new job, that you actually have the leeway and you don't have to rely uh, on, on the government keeping good on its promises. Um, but as we saw with this last crash, you would have been better off just spending all your money and then taking the stimulus <laughs> check. The, the documentaries are bipartisan, so you've interviewed people on both sides of the aisle. I'm wondering about your own politics. Do you have any particular leaning? I know you mentioned the Austrian School of Economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I in high school, I was a, a conventional Republican. Uh, I was very lucky. My dad actually worked for Islands for Tax Relief. Uh, he was a development director there. So in high school, uh, I was a janitor out there. And so as a lazy high schooler, instead of doing my job, I would take books off the shelf and go through people's offices and start reading all this stuff. So I learned about Social Security and the unfunded liabilities and how they'd already spent down the trust fund, and all that stuff. Um, so I was a traditional Republican. I believe in free market, I guess, but I also didn't uh, see the hypocrisy in a lot of my uh, policy proposals. Unfortunately, I, I supported the Iraq war. Um, but uh, in 2008, I started uh, Iowa Patients for Medical Marijuana. And my experiences uh, with that as a lobbyist, uh, we got a grant from the Marijuana Policy Project. And uh, my experiences with that really radicalized me because it was something where uh, the Iowa Board of Pharmacy looked at thousands and thousands of pages of studies and testimony and people all over the state uh, testified. And this not uh, bipartisan board unanimously recommended it, but the governor didn't support it. And so it all came down to anything with politics is really just a few people in a room forcing everybody else what to do. Um, and so I was hearing from people, you know, going to jail and there was nothing I could do. And so that experience really uh, radicalized me that along with I got mugged. Uh, and then a week later, uh, a cop uh, searched me and my experience with the cop was almost the exact same as a, the mugger. And then uh, another interaction I had, uh, a cop actually put a gun to my brother's head and then another cop put a gun to my head and they searched oh. me. Um, and, wow. you know, stuff like that. That's white stuff. That yeah, it's stuff like that that will radicalize you against the state. So I, I became much more libertarian. Uh, I was the Iowa State Director for Gary Johnson's 2012 uh, presidential campaign. Uh -huh. He was a former governor of New Mexico, for those that don't know. Um, and so th that was an amazing experience. But like I said about lobbying and, uh, you know, seeing the presidential election process, like I just had no taste for politics anymore. Like uh, all all the props to the people that are willing to donate their time, uh, you know, good for you guys. 
uh, I'm going to live my life. I've got too much. I've got other things to do uh, because I've spent too much time just begging these people, uh, only for them to just uh, rule over over everyone anyway. And uh, y- using medical marijuana exam- as an example, Iowa still not uh, up with the times. So, um, so I want to get clear about this. You are pushing for the legalization of medical marijuana. Yeah, yeah, just not not, not recreational. I, I mean, I. Su- I support recreational, but in a in a state like Iowa, uh, you can't even get a real medical bill passed. So, because uh, because I'm going to come in there, I am not a supporter of uh, legalizing marijuana. That's worthy of another episode. If you want to come back, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss yeah, sure. that, Jimmy. I'll agree to disagree. I just see too many um, negatives and uh, sides yeah. to this. But I wanted to also come back to the housing bubble and the you know the focus of your documentaries. They're well worth watching. They're very well made, very um, tightly put Thank together. You. And as you said, people with no uh, economic grounding will get it. You know, with the way you illustrated housing itself. If you're able to get in um, into the market, it's a great hedge long term against inflation, and so is land. So somebody that bought their house. 20, 30 years ago, my gosh, they're outpaced inflation. Isn't there that aspect to housing that we shouldn't overlook? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will point to the fact that in the last decade, uh, you know, supposedly not enough homes have been created to uh, keep up with the demand. Um, But I I think the factor that, so one thing people point to is you can walk in, you could have walked in a house at a super low rate. And then the value, it doesn't matter if the house loses value because the amount you're going to have to pay off in that mortgage is going to deflate over time. You know, like the money's going to lose the value. So who cares? And you're, yeah. you're, you're locked in at that early rate. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe that was the right call. The, the thing that scared me away from that is just the fact that for the first time in history, the last 10 years, the Federal Reserve has created all this money to buy mortgage securities. And so I was afraid to buy a house in a, in a market like that, because I don't know if they're going to dump it. I don't know if property taxes are going to be double in a couple of years. Um, so I, I think that uh, it, it's a very complicated uh, issue. And that's that's why I wanted people to be able to watch the films and come to their own conclusions, because we're trying to give people the framework and the basic understanding of what the Fed's been doing and what a lot of these factors were. And then they can come to their own conclusions and they can have their own conversations. Whereas before, if anybody wanted to bring up this stuff, they'd have to try to bring up all the stuff we're talking about in the movie in a conversation. Whereas now you can sit down and watch this movie with a friend and then you guys can talk about, hey, I disagree with this or, you yeah. know, this part was good. It, it just completely changes the level of discussion. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, that's been the best part about it for me is hearing from people saying uh, like, oh, I was able to watch this with my dad. And, you know, like we were able to talk about it after like that, that's why we made it to, to give people uh, the knowledge to to make their own decisions. So the latest one is the bigger bubble. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's kind of confusing. Uh, you know, there have been other names, people call it the bubble. Uh, really, it was a project that came together uh, as I, I wanted to make one movie and then have it like a Lord of the Rings extended edition where there was like sure. a four, four episode thing. Um, and I wasn't able to get it down to one movie. So I turned it into two movies where it's the first two episodes are in the first movie, the last two are in the other. Um, and so we actually have an app 
coming out later this year where people will be able to, you know, watch all four episodes through there. And then uh, we're on Vimeo digitally. People can buy the movie on Blu-ray or DVD on our website, thebubblefilms.com. Uh, my website uh, is letusdisagree.com. My production company is Let Us Disagree Productions. So p- people can get all that there. Um, and then uh, the app I'm really excited about because uh, anybody will be able to just pick an episode. You don't have to watch just the first episode for free. You can pick whatever episode you want. So if you want to skip to the end and watch the last one, you can. Um, but then, uh, you know, people have the opportunity to donate money uh, to allow other people to watch episodes or uh, to buy the, buy the rest of the series. So um, it, it, it's been a, a, a huge blessing and I, I'm excited for people to be able to see it uh, even more than we already have. We ha- we've had sales in over 70 countries in all 50 states and we've had like 25 screenings so far. Um, but with COVID and everything that's happened the last few years, we've really been held back. Um, so I'm, w- I'm looking forward to getting this out even more. Uh, we're going to be expanding to uh, Walmart has Voodoo where you can, you'll be able to buy it. And then um, the Google store and the Apple store as well. Um, so we, we keep expanding and uh, trying to find new ways of reaching people. And so this, I believe a premiere of this documentary soon. Yeah, yeah. I just got to finish it up. <laughs> it's getting there. It's getting there. It's the after effects and aftershocks of these bubbles and these financial collapses that come to my mind. I, I can only speak to my own native Ireland. I've been in America many, many years, but we had a huge housing bubble there and it just kept building houses everywhere in the middle of Bogland even. It was just getting so absurd that eventually it just popped. So the country Ireland was sitting on a lot of vacant properties, some of them in the middle of nowhere, and they had a crisis on their hands. And then ultimately what happened is some of them or a lot of them just got knocked down because there was no consumer demand Mm. for them. And then also they invited in some big global investors known as vulture funds to come in to take over these properties they were sold off at a discount and now they're managing them and apparently there's a lot of controversy at home in ireland about that style of management repairs all kinds of things that the idea that the um, renters are not kind of taken care of as it were and at the same time there's a massive housing crisis still in ireland they're not building enough enough homes the big point is that you know when you have these shocks the the lawmakers come together and the banks come together and they come up with a new set of protocols and it's usually another disaster in the making. Yeah, I, th- I think an, an interesting point with that is that uh, they're building the wrong homes. The homes they're building are these giant mansions where if people realize that we're actually not as rich as we all think we were, and then they'd be building the homes for the people that uh, actually need them, you know, or as smaller, smaller <laughs> homes. But I'm also, when you mentioned earlier in the start of this interview about the miles you traveled, mm-hmm. thousands of miles, I mean, that was just a grueling, exhausting adventure, I suppose, on one level. On the other hand, you took up a lot of your energy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a 97 Pontiac Sunfire, a two-door car, and I drove from Iowa up to uh, Montreal, and I, sl- I slept in a, a Walmart parking lot and uh interviewed mark faber who's like you know he's predicted every crash since the 80s he's just a a legend uh and so i 
I literally was washing my hair in gas station bathrooms and then going and interviewing people like Jim Rogers. Um, I, I went and shot in New York City uh, and I would, I would sleep in the, the Best Buy parking lot in my car <laughs> just right outside of the city. And it was just, it was a ridiculous experience to be honest. But you I got your equipment and camera with you. Oh man. So I did some events back in 2013. Uh, I went to, everybody was talking about Estonia because what we were talking about earlier, where the government uh, looks at GDP and sees consumption and they want to promote that in Estonia, uh, they wanted, they uh, wanted to actually promote uh, exports. And uh, so it was a different thing where they were looking at their GDP and saying, you know, we got to keep it exactly how it is but they were coming to a different conclusion than us. Um, and so uh, I wanted to go there and learn about how they had responded differently to the crash. And so uh, I went to Germany and then set up events uh, at the Warsaw School of Economics and with Free uh, Lithuanian Free Market Institute um, and then the Mises Institute of Estonia in Tallinn. Uh, and then I was able to interview the prime minister of uh, Estonia and the finance minister and social minister. But it was it was a crazy experience. I didn't speak uh, any Polish, of course, and it was a Sunday. I didn't have any local currency. I was coming by train from uh, Berlin and I thought, okay, it's this time. I'm supposed to get off of the train station in Warsaw this time. And I got off the train and I was supposed to be at the downtown Warsaw train station. I was at some other Warsaw train station. (laughs) And so the guy I was supposed to stay with, I'm like, you know, I didn't have a cell phone. I got my computer out, uh, connected to Wi-Fi and I'm messaging him. He's like, I'm outside. I'm like, let me check. And I go outside. He's not there, you know? And so like, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Eventually he gave up. And so I, uh, I had to walk like, two miles with all my camera gear and, you know, like through downtown Warsaw and I got to a a hostel and uh, they took my passport and they were like, when you pay us tomorrow, you know, you'll get your passport back. Um, And it, it, at, you know, at the time I was like in tears, but like looking back, (laughs) like what better way to see the city than like have to walk through it in the middle of the night. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, you paid your, the price in tears here. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of great material and to get access to all these politicians, economists, great thinkers is just fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what I wanted to do is like, I wanted to tell the story in a simple way that people could understand because these people have books, but you're not going to convince somebody to, to read uh, Ron Paul's book if they're not interested in this stuff. But, you know, this allows people to sit down for 40 minutes or 80 minutes and and, and get to hear those stories. And the other thing is uh, not all these people, including myself, are like the best speakers. So like people would see Ron Paul in his presidential campaign and they'd be like, what the hell is this crazy guy saying? You know, he's dropping all these random uh, words and phrases that people don't know about. But then when you watch the movie, you're like, ah, Bretton Woods, you know, like it, yeah. it allows uh, all the stuff that they're trying to get out in these conversations. It allows it to be presented in a structured, uh, thought out way. And, you know, it took us years longer than we hoped. But the, the big reason for that is because we just obsessed over every word, making it as simple as we possibly could. Um, and, you know, looking back, I wouldn't uh, take anything out of the first movie. Um, the one thing I would change is when we were talking about the Great Depression, we had a part in there that I took out where we talked about the tariffs, all the tariffs they had during the Great Depression, how they didn't take into account that if you put a tariff on something, uh, the stuff you need to make that you won't be able to get. And so like the, they couldn't 
take all this into account. They don't know what goes into all these different things to produce everything. So they're trying to put these tariffs on, but then it backfires because then you're short aluminum or something else that you need to make the thing. So you can't even make it yourself. And, uh, you know, we've kind of seen that play out these last few years with the government deciding uh, uh, who's non-essential and who's essential. I'm very proud of the fact in our first movie, which came out in 2018, uh, we talk about the government uh, deciding and actually using these words, which businesses were essential and non-essential businesses during World War II. Um, so it, it was very uh, prescient. The other thing uh, that we had in there was Andrew Cuomo looking like an idiot saying a bunch of stuff. So that was very prescient as well, because we've seen him do that a few times these last years. Yes, week. <laughs> indeed, we have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when you look at today's economy, nobody's quite sure where we're going, but the Dow Jones has been plunging. The major indices have been plunging. Crypto has uh, been a total disaster lately. Right. Investors are skittish. There's a general air of doom and gloom building here you think of the bubbles and everything does this bring it all to a head i mean i i feel i don't know how long it's going to take it to play out but it just seems like we're at a tipping point um you know these these last 10 years we've we've been able to kind of skate by but all this stuff was building under the scenes and it's gotten to the point where you know without uh, you know, drastic tax increases, which would devastate the economy, uh, or without creating all this money, it, there's just no way that we can do all this. We can't keep going on the way we ha- have. And, you know, the, there's a entire generations of people are figuring out what it's like to not be able to afford going out to fill your gas tank and, you know, go out to eat for every meal. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been able to get by on, on lifestyles like that uh, yeah. in America. And it's, uh, we're, I think uh, Jim Rogers puts it uh, really well. It's that there are a lot of people who are bankrupt in America that don't know it yet. And, you know, that's, I think that just sums it up perfectly. It truly does. There are a lot of um, hardship cases in America. A lot of people live in paycheck to paycheck, Mm -hmm. barely able to make their mortgage payments, uh, barely able to pay for food with rising food costs, trying to tank up their gas tanks. It's pretty disturbing. It's obviously hardest for poor people, but it's not just poor people. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a high income, if you're built-in expenses are as much as your income. And when half the country is living paycheck to paycheck, uh, you know, you can't handle any sort of recession. And when these state and local governments have just been spending money like crazy uh, during these boom times, when suddenly the economy crashes and they're not getting as uh, much in tax receipts as we saw in 2008, and then as we saw in 2020, uh, the federal government was stimulus. And so like, that was a big part of Obama's stimulus bill was just giving money to the states so they could keep paying off their uh, employees. And, uh, and then in 2020, um, you know, that was a big part of what the Federal Reserve was doing. They actually bought municipal bonds. And, and even on the corporate side, it's so crazy to me in 2020, the Federal Reserve actually came out and had an announcement, hey, here's a list of however many companies we've been buying their bonds, we've, we've been bailing them out and buying their bonds, like that's been illegal. You know, they, they suddenly just can do that, apparently. And wouldn't that have been nice to know that list ahead of time, like all those people sitting in on these meetings? Like, it's just an absurd economy where everybody's living from Fed, Federal Reserve announcement to Federal Reserve announcement to see, you know, how do you invest to handle what the Fed's doing? 
And how do you do that when you don't know what they're going to do, when it's just a handful of people making decisions? Yeah. You also look at the size of our consumer debt in America, $15 trillion. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I've been saying for years that I thought student loans were going to get bailed out because, you know, if you can't announce a new QE or a new stimulus bill, there you go. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, pay, pay off all these students. That, that It's funny what, what people don't realize is the government has already shifted most of the students' loans away from the private market. So like what we were talking about with Fannie Mae, we have Sally Mae, where, uh, you know, the government owns most of the student loan debt. So when they say we need to forgive student loans, they're not saying screw the people uh, that aren't, you know, that have these uh, student loans that, you know, all these students are having to pay into, uh, you know, screw the banks, they're not going to get that money. No, what they're saying is we need the government to allocate some money to paying off all this student loan debt that the government just happens to own. So it, it's kind of a ridiculous proposition. If they really wanted to just, uh, you know, uh, shift money to those students, they could do it without bailing out the government. Good point. So in the short to medium term and longer term, what's the worst case scenarios we could see here? Could the US economy, the global economy seize up? How would it look? Uh, God, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, it... Uh, I like in other I, words, mass unemployment. Um, banks are going out of business. Um, weird yeah. things. Government can't meet its obligations. We lose our reserve currency in the U.S. Global political tensions escalate. Yeah, I, I, I think worst case scenario uh, is war. You know, world war, and that, that's that's uh, yeah. that's the. Uh, you know, if they fight uh, a war between, uh, if you know, if they're going to try to stop China from becoming the next superpower uh, with a war, that's the scariest proposition. Um, but as far as here, uh, worst case scenario, I think, is that we face a lot more of these shortages. And like you said, as, as bankruptcies uh, happen, as people are losing their jobs, like, we can't just live stimulus check to stimulus check. It's not, it, we can't just print money and pay people to stay home. And it, it's pretty insane to think what they actually tried to get away with doing in 2020. Like these are things that people would have been laughed out of the room uh, if they had suggested it in the past. Like the, the stimulus bills, it's, it is kind of funny. Like the, the, the whole idea of sending out a stimulus check, like they did that in 2008, uh, George Bush did it. And so it's funny that like COVID and shutting down the entire economy led to sending out these checks and that in 2008, we were just dealing with a housing crash and they're like, oh, well, we better send out stimulus checks. If everybody goes out and spends these, that's going to save the economy. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the worst case scenario is that we don't see any cuts that they don't deal with these budget issues and, you know, allow interest rates to go back up and then stop buying these mortgage securities. I, I think it's actually going to be worse if they keep trying to prop it up, which unfortunately is what they'll do. You know, as soon as uh, stocks fall enough or house prices fall enough, they're, they're going to try to inject as much as they can into these industries. And, you know, it'll slow down the crash. Um, but I, I don't think it can uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it can just gloss over all these issues. I think we're going to have to see it play out 
Well, we're nearly out of time, Jimmy. Give us um, some details again. Repeat them on where your documentaries, where people can watch them, view them, and your website. Yeah, the easiest way um, is digitally through Vimeo. Um, and the movie is just 10 bucks, guys. It's, it's, uh, we wanted to keep it affordable, even though 10 bucks isn't worth that much anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and so you can get the uh, movie digitally from Vimeo for 10 bucks. If you go to letusdisagree.com, um, that's, that's my production company. We've got tons of all the raw footage of the interviews is on there and everything. Um, and a bunch of podcasts, all sorts of stuff, music videos. Um, and then if they want the Blu-ray or DVD, if you go to the bubble films.com, that'll take you right to uh, the order page. I, I think people, if they check out our trailer, they'll get a good idea of the tone of these movies. You know, it's not depressing economics, uh, talking heads. It's South Park. It's the Daily Show. It's cartoon humor in it too. Yeah, it, it's a funny movie. It's full of pop culture references. And so it's not something that you're going to have to slog through. Jimmy Morrison has been a pleasure having you on my show. Take care and good luck. Thank you. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699, 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.